Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to an extra edition of the SITREP podcast. The UK's armed forces are all shrinking because people are leaving faster than they're joining. A big part of the problem is people's expectations of careers have changed and at the same time as the forces need more personnel with specialist skills. The head of the Royal Navy has described it as being in a war for talent. The solutions, according to a review commissioned by the Defence Secretary, involve a radical rethink of life and careers in the armed forces. The Haythornthwaite Review says one-size-fits-all terms and conditions should be replaced with flexible careers where people have more choice in their level of commitment. Its 67 recommendations also include fixing accommodation, better internet access and changing pay structures to reward skills. The review was deliberately led by someone with experience of running big civilian organisations, but he had a military advisor. Retired Lieutenant General Sir Nick Pope has been telling me about the problems facing the forces to recruit and retain talent and how it should be fixed. If you think back to the genesis for the report, Nick Carter was Chief of the Defence Staff and was around when the Integrated Operating Concept was launched in 2021. And General Nick's view was that um, it was about time he rethought through the people function. So we hadn't done so for a number of years. And so he at that stage decided that it would be useful to have an independent review with an independent arbiter coming into the department to have a look at the people's system end to end. And as a consequence, we spent most of the last year really getting under the under the bonnet of the people's system from the attract through the train, the retrain, the retain, the transition process, just to have a look at what the current process is and whether it was fit for purpose. And there were 67 recommendations, but can you distill for us what the key changes that are needed are? Oh, golly, that's a big question. So I think that um, where Rick Hazelthwaite, who was the author of the review, and at the end of the day, I was his military bag carrier, where we came from really was the integrated operating concept that the, the department sort of espoused two years ago change the demand signal. So it was asking for greater levels of commitment from the armed forces. It was asking for greater skills levels from the armed forces. But if you looked at society, society's changing. So young men and women in the 21st century um, require or after more uh, agency, they're after more choice. Um, So the supply side of the equation is changing. As, as, as at the same time, the demand side is changing. You therefore look at the people system of the department, which is generally bottom-up fed um, individuals, young men and women required to undertake extraordinary things every day, um, selfless commitment, these kind of values that um, we've had in the military context. And you map that to this, this, this new supply system and you say to yourself, is it fit for purpose? Um, does the department think systemically about the people function? And our, our take was probably not. There's a load of great stuff going on inside the MOD, but it's happening in silos. And unless the department can zoom the camera back and look his, his, you know, um, from a sort of a whole basis holistically at what's going on inside the people function, mm. then it's probably 
not really got a process that's fit to uh, succeed in the future. And and if it's not fit for purpose and people uh, might be looking for shorter careers, uh, part-time careers, uh, move temporarily to being a reservist, for example, can that complete flexibility actually work in a military context? Certainly not for everybody. And, and of course, when you join up, either as an aviator or a, or a sailor or as an, uh, a young person in the army, um, you know, you're looking for uh, a career at the get-go, which will require of you probably reasonably high levels of commitment. But the point that we are trying to make um, is from the get-go, people want more, more choice. They want more agency of their own career. They want to have more flexibility. And certainly as you go through your career, that becomes increasingly pertinent. So the model right now for defence, you might argue, is siloed. It's quite difficult to change your terms and conditions of service, to move from, as you say, uh, dialing up or down the commitment spectral. It's quite difficult to think about change within career fields. And so the idea of uh, what we call a spectrum of service is something that we're saying the department needs to, to look at quite carefully. The department needs to look at its its reward mechanisms, which tend to be quite financially based. And actually, there are some aspects of um, service, so pensions, housing, or the, or, or the like, where actually the, the offer from the department maybe isn't as appreciated by individuals as it might be. And the final thing that I say is, is necessary for the department to think about is digitalization. Um, our kind of key message here was the department doesn't really understand value. Its metrics are about quantity, so numbers of troops, um, numbers of minority ethnic communities, numbers of females entering the system, rather than about quality, so skill sets, um, perceptions, um, reasons why people choose to stay, reasons why people choose to live. And until it gets data in those areas, it's very difficult to understand how you might change the system. But presumably on, on an individual ba- basis, when you were commanding, you did exactly understand those things. You'd be surprised, actually. So, um, for instance, uh, our ability to collect longitudinal data departmentally on the reasons that people uh, leave colour service, the, the ability to um, have conversations which matter, with people once they've decided to leave um, is is sometimes fragmented. So if I was to try and make policy decisions based on aggregated data, I'd find it very, very difficult in the current context. It's not that the department can't do it. It's just chosen not to have done it previously. If I stand back now and reflect on my service, I'd say that the department is good strategically doing three or four things. It's very good at the acquisition um, system. It's got a process in place to, to look after that. It's very good at the uh, the operations side of life, obviously. That's the raison d'etre for defence. Um, and you could argue it's quite good at the finance function too. It's got a very good, well-proven uh, system in place to look after um, uh, the public purse. But arguably, its people function is, is rather siloed. So the ability to think about strategic workforce planning, about um, career planning, about career management is rather fragmented. I'll give you an example. Um, If I was the first sea lord now looking in at the department, I might say, so you've you've basically outsourced the recruiting function 
to um, a service provider. You've outsourced the initial training function to a service provider. You've outsourced the transition function to a service provider. Where in there is my agency as the head of the Navy service to look after my young sailors in a way that enables me to incentivize in an agile function? So all of these things that the department's done in a siloed fashion for jolly good reasons of cost efficiency and cost effectiveness may not give you arguably um, the optimum holistic outcome where you can balance individual incentivization and organizational efficiency. Do you think the outsourcing was a mistake then, or is it that there needs to be a way of working through that? So I think it wasn't a mistake because each of the decisions the department's taken over the last 25 years, you could argue, were, were made for very, very sensible reasons. And there's absolutely a place for industry to play in these areas because we bring into the department skill sets that the MOD um, arguably doesn't have. And, you know, I think there is an absolutely a balance to be played. The argument that we're making in the report, I think, is that if you were in the Navy or the Army or the Air Force, um, you feel slightly disenfranchised uh, compared to where you might be. So we considered um, a, a very long and hard where the sweet spot might be between what you would call desirable consistency. So policies delivered by the department, maybe at MOD level, which set a framework within which there may be tolerable variation. So our conversations with the single service chiefs and with the chief of the defence staff and the vice chief throughout the um, process. And it's worth emphasising that actually in our conversations, we were very careful to maintain close contact with the chiefs and with the people committee in, in, in head office. Our conversations were very much about this idea of desirable consistency from a departmental perspective, vice tolerable variation. Because let's face it, the, you know, the Navy, the Air Force, and the army each have an operating model which is discrete. Yes, they come together for joint operations. Yes, the department is arguably better when the some of the individual parts are brought together holistically to deliver an output which is joint. But actually, the input levels are very much somebody joins the army, the navy, or the air force, and when they leave as a veteran, their first thought is, "I was in the army, I was in the navy, I was in the air force," rather than. I was in defence. We like our tribes. And what is the benefit to the forces and our military capability to allowing people this career flexibility? I think it plays two ways. I think if you don't, then there's arguably a chance that the uh, armed forces will not be able to attract sufficient young men and women in the 21st century to, to meet the needs of filling the ranks, as a previous report puts it. Uh, I also think of in the future where you think about um, young men and women in the 21st century wanting plural careers or portfolio careers, the opportunity to come into colour service, to serve for two, three, four years, to gain skill sets, uh, either in terms of trade skills or in terms of values and standards or leadership skills, to take those out into employment outside of the forces and then to come back in again on a, a zigzag career. Um, at a higher rank, potentially, or to bring in other skill sets. That's the kind of territory where you're looking at blurring the boundaries between those who are serving and those who have served. If you fast forward 20 years downstream, we may end up actually thinking about whether we have the boundary between regular service, reserve service, uh, and being a military veteran, correct? Because I suspect there's a good chance that boundary is going to be rather more blurred than it is today. 
Another big part of the report is about creating people value propositions. And I just want to read a bit that I think sums that up quite well. Don't say we recognize the importance of a healthy work-life balance. Do say serving in the armed forces is a 24-7 commitment. And at times you will be asked to deliver on that at short notice. When you do, we will recognize that in the reward package you are given by doing X, Y, Z. What kind of things are X, Y, and Z? And what kind of commitments are you talking about making there? Um, so the department needs to do some work on this because the current uh, delineator it uses for all service uh, personnel is X factor. So everybody gets you know thirteen and a half, fourteen and a half percent of their of their remuneration, fiscal remuneration through this X factor, which is designed uh, and awarded through the Armed Forces Pay Review Body for the exigencies of service. But it's quite a blunt tool right now. And the point that we are trying to make is that denies individuals choice. Let's say, for instance, there's a time in your career when you've got a young family, you're, let's say, a major in, in the army, and you want to say to your career management organisation, do you know, for the next six or seven years, I value stability. I want to remain in the same location with my family to sort out private, uh, you know, education for my children, to enable my, my spouse to get... Um, uh, uh, employment opportunities. And in so doing, I want to dial down my commitment levels a bit so I can ensure this stability. And as a consequence of that, because I'm valuing stability, I may get less in terms of the fiscal remuneration aspect uh, aligned to what we currently think of as X factor. So it's a so it's an intelligent conversation between the individual and the employer in a way where you can therefore offer choice to people about the kind of package that they want. On the commitment side, you've got a variety of commitments and each service has, you know, as said to us uh, throughout our engagements, they value different types of commitment. So from an army perspective, it may be about an operational tour in Estonia. From the Navy, it may be about ships deploying routinely onto the Ogin. From the Air Force, it may be about um, operating high technology equipment out of RAF Waddington, you know, drones and the like. So everybody has a different view about commitment. The view of the report is that that kind of reward mechanism which talks about commitment needs to be thought through very, very carefully to come up with a future package. And that flexibility, it might work for some roles, but not for others. Isn't there a danger of creating a two-tiered armed forces? Um, so I'd, I, mean, I, I wouldn't disagree that it's, it's a model that's going to be different for everybody. Um, but the the alternative is a model which is the same for everybody. And to our view, a one-size-fits-all means that you'll end up with a one-size-fits-nobody. So somehow you need to get a mechanism in place uh, that's different. Let me give you another example. Um, in our current system, the reward mechanism is very, very closely aligned to rank. So to move up the pay spine, one has to think about um, um, advancing in rank from you know, a junior um, rating through to um, uh, a senior warrant officer or the like. There are some parts of the, uh, uh, of the organization, not all, not all, but there are some parts of the organization, particularly in the engineering functions, where you might think actually about privileging skill rather than rank. As a, as, a, as a reason for reward. I mean, the most obvious example might be the cyber community, where actually we're currently using um, um, promotion as a mechanism to pay people more money. 
arguably um, for a cyber operator, it should be about competency and skills. That's actually the reason for remuneration. So you can see that you may end up with a model whereby parts of our system, not all of them, parts of our system um, change. And what we've argued in the report is not, not to lay down a sort of an architecture for the entire organization, but actually to go to the single services to say, come and test in an agile, quick fashion to see what works and what doesn't work. Uh, and each of the services have been quite enthusiastic about the idea of putting forward some trials, some pilots to see what would work in this particular area. And, and putting structural changes to one side, that there's quite a lot said in your report on accommodation. We know there are huge problems. It talks about people feeling promises aren't being kept. This needs commitment rather than a new plan, surely. It needs both. Particularly, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with that that point at all. Um, it's it's one of the areas which is, um, um, I think you could you could argue this from two different perspectives. It's absolutely true, true to say, and I think defence would acknowledge it, that there are parts of the defensive state which are woefully inadequate. Um, you know, they, are, they, they are short of the standards that the department wishes to get to. The department also will make the case that actually they are putting additional money into uh, expenditure on both service families accommodation, single living accommodation and technical accommodation. And we don't deny that. And we would we would argue and be very, very strong advocates of ensuring that that kind of financial package uh, is accelerated where practicable. You could also argue that actually um, young young service personnel, particularly those who are in service families accommodation, get their um, accommodation at rebated rates. And so the ability to think sensibly about the kind of money that you are putting out of your pay package into your accommodation unit currently isn't really well understood by people. So when we start to think about total reward framework, making making people more aware of the package that they have, I think is, is actually very, very important. You know, long, not long before I left uh, Manchester's employee being in a rather nice house in Salisbury, which I was, you know, I was paying much less than market rates for. Now, I didn't value that because it was not really in my pay packet, so I didn't really recognise it. But if I reflect on it looking back, you know, it was it was something that therefore wasn't part of my innate value proposition. That's the kind of territory where if you're a, a responsible and an intelligent um, individual, you know, most people in the armed forces are, you, you probably want to get better understanding of your, your sort of reward. And one of the interesting suggestions is allowing commanding officers to spend up to £100,000 on a trust with consequences basis rather than the current limit of £25,000. This is to improve, for example, accommodation maintenance. Um, what could that achieve? A lot of this is about empowerment and having that sense of responsibility further down the command chain. So in all the conversations we had across naval, you know, naval ships or RF bases or uh, army, army units, one of the aspects where individuals felt, organisations felt frustrated was this inability to offer choice at the lower level. So the more you can delegate responsibility down, down the chain, the better. So having young officers, um, having junior, um, uh, junior officers involved in those conversations about career management at the get-go, Having the chain of command involved in 
conversations about transition at the get-go, um, I think is really, really important. So when a young a young soldier or state or aviator joins in the future, what I'd love to see is an organization where from day one, people start having sensible conversations about um, preparing somebody for life after service. So if you have those conversations early on, the day that somebody chooses to leave color service, either because they've made that personal choice or because medically they've come to a place where they're having to leave, they're, they're prepared both financially, they thought about housing, they've got, about, they've got a robust medical system with mental resilience, and they've got opportunities for employment thereafter. You've basically created a resilient individual who leaves well, who will then think about coming back into service subsequently. Now, that's got to be a good thing. And there are also um, other things that might seem like smaller, easy wins when while well, they are serving, improving access to the internet, simplifying allowances to make them easy to claim. How big a difference could they make? All these small things individually seem kind of tangential, but when you add them together, I think collectively they get after that lived experience type of activity. Um, and so, you know, it, it's the small things quite often that trip you up. Um, if you can start to address them in a way that, that from a perception perspective alone makes it look like the department, the organisation cares for you as an individual, then A, I think that's a fantastic um, you know, uh, signal um, for a young person thinking about joining. But also, once in service, your lived experience is, uh, is, is, is that much better. And I put a point in here, actually, about, you know, one of the key findings that sort of is like a golden thread throughout the report is the, is the leadership and the culture aspects of uh, what are required. What we were very heartened by in, in the, in the um, conversations we had with the civil service chiefs and with CDS and vice chief, and indeed senior civil servants in the building, and indeed ministers, was the idea that if you're going to deliver Haythornthwaite, then this has got to be led from the top. So you don't bring in, you know, EDI policies with somebody tangential to the system. Culture is driven from the top and, and it, it's driven downwards. And the the hope that I have is that um, the, the senior elements of the organisation continue to drive um, people through through one of the one of the why would I be optimistic so one of the things I think that I found most heartening is that conversations about the people function have just started to go up the stack um so going into the MOD routinely uh you know to to deliver parts of the report over the last three or five three or four or five months it's always been interesting to see to me to see people starting to think through the people function, people talking about the people function far more routinely than had been the case a year ago. That's got to be a good thing. The government is now looking at these recommendations. What do you believe are the consequences if they don't go through with this plan? So I think um, our view, which uh, Rick Haythamthwaite um, expressed yesterday in the House of Commons um, to um, a, a gang of MPs and Lords was um, if you follow um, Haythornthwaite, then actually not only will you have an armed forces which is well equipped to meet the demands of an uncertain world, but arguably it offers a blueprint for um, 
social transformation across the nation. Because the point we're making is that the MOD is not alone. This is an issue that faces most of the private sector, most of the public sector, most of the third sector. So we are really providing a blueprint, which we think um, is has got utility across the nation. If, however, you choose not to address some of these issues and you retain the current people system, then you place at danger the ability of our armed forces, which we all admire and love and respect. You place at danger their ability successfully to, to you know, meet the demands, as I say, of a, a very uncertain and challenging world. Nick Pope, great to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. A pleasure. Thank you very, very much. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep.